You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. I am joined now by Dr. Claiborne Carson, uh, whose work on Dr. King, his papers, his scholarship is very well known. In 1985, as so many people know, Coretta Scott King um, selected Dr. Claiborne Carson to edit and publish Martin Luther King Jr.'s papers under the direction of Dr. Claiborne Carson and the King Papers Project. They have produced seven volumes of a definitive, comprehensive edition of Dr. King's speeches, sermons, correspondence, uh, unfinished work. In 2005, the King Papers Project became a part of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. And Dr. Carson, of course, is the founding director. Dr. Carson, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. I'm glad to have you here. I want to actually start by going back. Um, to kind of go to the beginning, um, many years ago, when you were 19 years old, you joined the March on Washington. Now that you have the long eye of history on your side, looking back, do you think the goals that were laid out on that day, have they been accomplished? No, <laughs> of course not. Uh, you know, the, any kind of social movement begins with large goals. And when you're talking about visionaries like uh, Bayard Rustin, A. Philip Randolph, and and uh, the people who actually conceived of the march, you know, they were they called it the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they had a very ambitious agenda of uh, guaranteed annual income and all of these sorts of things that we haven't accomplished even now. Uh, so. Um, so no, when you go back and look at, at the uh, the goals that were laid out, uh, some of them were accomplished. We had some, you know, obviously the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, and the Voting Rights Act that came the, the following year. But who today would argue that uh, racial discrimination has been overcome and that uh, we we live in a, uh, you know, an economy, a, a nation where you know everyone has equal opportunity you know that hasn't been achieved uh, and Martin Luther King never retired you know he his if anything he became more insistent that the goals that he had fought for during his lifetime um, were extended way beyond simply uh, civil rights legislation you know he, he uh, he was trying to lead a poor people's campaign. And just think of the audaciousness of that, of saying, I'm going to go and organize an occupation of the National Mall until this country deals with the issue of poverty. You know, that would be radical today. That would probably get him thrown in jail. I mean, we're not talking about, uh, you know, we're not talking about occupy the local park. <laughs> talking about Occupy the Nation's Park and for a long period of time. Now, he was saying, let's do it nonviolently. And, and I think at that time, he um, was able to lead a, a mostly nonviolent movement. 
But that was a radical demand then, and it was be a radical demand now. We still haven't really dealt with the issue of poverty. Can you talk about, about a bit about nonviolence as a strategy? Because you know, today young people sometimes hear nonviolent and they think, oh, that means you're passive. Can, can you talk about <laughs> why that's actually not what it means to be nonviolent in your stand? Yes, definitely it does not mean being passive and it doesn't even mean uh, having a specific kinds of of tactics, uh, it's it's more the notion that every freedom movement generates its own opposition. You know, it, if you, if you have more power than your opponent, you don't have to struggle. You you simply exercise that power and get what you want. So the question is, how do you achieve change when you recognize that the people opposing you have more power than you do? You know. Gandhi developed a lot of these techniques because he was confronting the, the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, the British Empire at that time. Martin Luther King developed his techniques in the most powerful nation of his time. So they knew that simply picking up the gun would not achieve the goal. The other side had far more guns and more, far more powerful guns. So you had to develop a, a strategy that turned your weakness into a strength. And that was the strategy of nonviolence. That was the ideal of nonviolence, is how to turn what seems like your enemy into your ally. And that can only be done by making clear that your goal is not to achieve a new sort of di dominance, but rather uh, to assure uh, a new community could be established that was more equal than the last community. And, uh, and, and in a way, that's what democracy is. Democracy is nonviolence in action. It's basically saying, look, let's live in a dem democratic society where we can express what we want and everyone uh, recognizes and, ac and accepts the results. You know, and, and that's what we saw didn't happen with the last election. Not everyone accepted the result, but that's, you know, that should be the bottom line of, of saying, claiming to be a democratic society is that, that you are going to accept that result. And when you refuse to accept it, you know, that puts you on the other side. And because, you know, then, then that's when you have to begin to say, look, you know, the only way we're going to overcome this is through violence because the other side is not going to accept a nonviolent answer. And, and, and I think that that's what uh, freedom struggles throughout the world. You know, that's, that's what, always in the end comes out. It offers a choice. Said, so, look, we can either resolve this nonviolently, which is best for everybody, or if you give us no other choice, then we do have to. Yeah. But I think King understood that, that if you achieve power, 
you can achieve change. It's only a powerless people uh, that you know have this this awful choice of either accepting oppression, uh, which no people should ever have to do, um, but also fighting a futile battle. Because even even if you achieve something through violence, you have to protect it through violence. Mm-hmm. So so I think that he, uh, you know, this is a wisdom that. I can express maybe at, at uh, my age, but uh, when I was in my 20s, you know, I, I favored black power. And I think King did. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look back at his book, Where Do We Go From Here? There's no, hardly any better explanation of the need for black power rightly understood. Uh, when you go and look back at, at the program, the 10-point program of the Black Panther Party. I would argue that a large part of that should be the program of the Democratic Party. It should not be seen as a radical goal. It, it makes sense. Um, but I think people were put off by, you know, pick up, picking up the gun. And uh, when, especially when you haven't uh, trained in the use of that gun. So it's, uh, you know, so I think what we're, where we are right now is that we understand that, you know, that departure was, was not very productive. Um, that, but, but I think even King, King understood that there was a side of that that was very good. And that is black power as black consciousness, as having a pop positive consciousness. And that that's, a necessary result of any liberation movement. Women's liberation, um, the same thing, is that it developed a new consciousness uh, that was very positive. And that, yes, women should have the same rights as anyone else. And, and so that's good. And they should have pride in the accomplishments of women. And, and you know, just like Black people should have pride in the accomplishments of, of black people throughout history. Um, so that's the positive side of it. There was the other side of it, which was more about uh, expressing the anger that comes from continued oppression, uh, the hatred sometimes of your oppressor. You know, and, and there was that side of, of the black power movement. Ask as we sit here on you know Dr. King's weekend, where when people talk about Black history, we know that Dr. King is a central figure that everybody talks about, uh, and when we've heard his his name, his his voice, his words have been used to sell a multitude of products, right? Um, let me ask you, what do we get wrong about Dr. King? Well, I I don't think the words are wrong. I mean, any words can be used for any, a lot of different purposes. I, I think that what happens is that he expressed ideas that are very important, more articulately than practically anybody else. You know, that's, that's why they're memorable, you know, is that, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, it's, it's, let's fight for freedom, let's fight for justice, let's you know, all these, these wonderful things, human rights, but he just said them better. 
<laughs> and that's why that's why we we remember those phrases, and that's why he became a leader. I mean, it, it it's not like he started the Montgomery bus boycott. He didn't. He didn't start the freedom rides or the uh, sit-ins, and he didn't start the Birmingham campaign or the Selma voting rights campaign. Other people did that, but when he came into the picture, when he became the spokesperson for the Montgomery bus boycott, suddenly this movement that Harley got on the front page in Montgomery became something known around the world. And that's, that was his accomplishment of, you know, that, that first night of the, of the Montgomery bus boycott, when he gave his first speech as a civil rights leader. And the boycott at that point is one day old. And he's giving a speech saying, when the history books of the future, they will have to say they lived a great people who had the courage to stand up for their rights right here in Montgomery, Alabama. Well, how could he know that the history books of the future would even care about what happened in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, a one day boycott. But when you're sitting in that audience and you're facing the reality that to, to succeed, we're going to have to be walking to work for 381 days or, or finding an alternative means of transportation for more than a year. Having a leader who is able to say, you know, this is not just getting a better seat on the bus. This is something that is going to be historically important to your grandchildren. You know, then you have that sense, maybe I can walk one day longer. Maybe uh, I'm not going back and taking that seat at the back of the bus. And, and that's what a leader can do, that inspire people to, to um, stay in the struggle and continue the struggle until you achieve a victory. Uh, and and say that this may be a small victory, but it's part of something larger, something that will be in the history books. And I think that that's where leadership comes in. Um, you know, I, I I look at you know Black Lives Matter, and you know there is that suspicion of leadership. Right. And it's, and I think a large measure because leaders tend to be male; they tend to be um, you know, have some selfish interests in, in, in leading. Um, they, they tend to be domineering rather than, rather than simply inspiring. So I, th I think we see the flaws of leadership. But visionary leadership is important at every level. And I, I think that there, you know, maybe we won't have that pressure imposed from the outside sometimes mm. that press or the existing establishment well we can't just negotiate with all of you folks can you just designate this person who could speak for you and then we'll negotiate with that person and so a lot of the pressure to have the the charismatic figure comes from uh, the existing establishment don't want to deal with people they want to deal with one person and, and it's easier to manipulate that one person or even eliminate that one person if they don't like the leader that 
that comes up. So, uh, so I think that, but there's nothing inherently wrong with, with visionary leadership. That's, that's what allows people to, to interpret their own experience and say, yeah, you know, what, what we're, what we're trying to do, um, you know, you might think of it as just a, um, get a, getting a better seat on a bus, but it's really much more than that. And that's what the, the vision is. Well, let me ask you, Dr. Carson, as someone who has lived through Jim Crow, uh, come through the civil rights movement, have seen the impact of Reaganomics on our community, the three strikes rule under Bill Clinton, have seen the election of the first black president and now of course the election of the first black woman, first you know, Asian American and Indian woman to be vice president. Thinking about all of that, what does it mean to you in this moment right now on the eve of this inauguration? You know, have we come a long way? I know we still have a long way to go, but. But how would you sum it up from the 19-year-old kid at the March of Washington to where you sit as an elder statesman now, watching how this is unfolding? Well, in some ways, I am disappointed with the pace of change. I mean, it just shows how much the resistance is. You know, and, and when King was writing that book, Where Do We Go From Here? You know, he was just beginning to see um, the opposition. You know, he had lived through the Kennedy years, He'd lived through Lyndon Johnson's landslide victory in 1964. And if someone had told him that the changes, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act are going to try drive tens of millions of Americans who had only voted for the Democratic Party all of their life in the South would then vote the rest of their life for the Republicans. You know, that movement of tens of millions of people, and we know the Southern strategy, we know the backlash, we know all the techniques that were used by people like Spiro Agnew and Nat Dixon and George Wallace and all, all of them of capturing that allegiance, which shape, has shaped American politics for the last half century. And we still don't know whether the strat Southern strategy is going to go on for, you know, it, it isn't dead. You know, uh, I've pointed out that um, Joe Biden, well, uh, Donald Trump received more votes than any other presidential candidate with the exception of Joe Biden. Still today, in every election since 1964, the majority of white Americans have voted against the Democratic candidate. And, and that's what happened in this election. So when will that end? When will it end where it's not simply um, a, a matter of expanding the electorate to include black people and young people who are not infected by racism or not so infected that they can squeak out a narrow victory by a percentage point in a state election and a national election. Does that mean that Jim Crow is over? 
or that the Southern strategy is over? Of course not. You know, it, it's it's still well and, you know, it captures the hearts of 75 million people. So that's that's the reality that we're on the, maybe the, we can see that the Southern strategy is um, less potent than it once was, in part because you have a whole generation of white Americans who have grown up with the Martin Luther King holiday, yep. who, have, who have experienced a black president and see that as a new normal, even as their parents don't recognize that's the new normal. And certainly their grandparents don't recognize that. So it's, you know, it's, it's hopeful. I, I think if Martin Luther King were here at 92 years old, he would be hopeful um, with that result. I mean, the notion that the state in which he grew up in has a black senator and a Jewish senator, you know, if someone had told me even five years ago that that would happen. I, I, I would have, you know, what are you smoking? You know, it's not, it, it, that's just not the case. But it did happen. And it happened because, and we all know the story. I mean, that's going to be in the history books of the future. How 10 years ago, everyone was talking about, well, there's this potential electorate. It's, you know, young people and black people, but they don't vote. You know, they they don't vote to the same degree as white people. And now we have this new narrative. Maybe they vote at higher levels than white people. And to many people in America, that's a scary thought because they built this political system that is specifically designed to dampen the impact of black voting. You make black people wait in lines. You make it hard for them to register. You kick them off the registration rolls whenever you can. Uh, you uh, do everything possible to discourage black voting. And despite all that, yeah. I mean, here in Palo Alto, I've never waited more than three minutes to vote. <laughs> You just, and we walk, my wife and I walk to the nearest voting poll. It's just around, around the corner and you know, there's never a line. That's what voting should be for everybody. And then I come home and turn on the television and see uh, students at predominantly black universities waiting hours in line past the, when the, polling booths are, are closed. And so despite all that, people came out to vote. Now, whether that can be sustained over, you know, the, the, the next uh, narrative that people will have is, oh, they did that in a presidential election, but in an office election, they're, they're not gonna go to the polls. You know, that's just not gonna happen. 
and we'll see. Yeah, and but I but I think that one of the things that's also happened, and and I feel proud of whatever role I've played in this, is that the the civil rights narrative has been become part of the identity that young people have of being American. And what I mean by that is that those have become part of the American story that they get in documentaries, you know, like the ones we're showing this weekend at, 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 our, at our film festival. Uh, they've watched Eyes on the Prize. And I said, you know, they celebrated the King holiday. You know, they, they watched a different version of America. And that has a, an impact. Now, it still, it still means that, you know, it's, it's up in the air whether that, uh, that kind of enthusiasm that we saw in this election, where everything seemed to be at stake. You know, one, one thing that Trump did, which I think was um, useful, if not positive, and he was the kind of Republican who could really mobilize right. because he was very explicit about you know, his, his language, his uh, arrogance. Um, you know, there, there was no, no one would describe Donald Trump as the, as the gentle face of Republicanism. Oh, not at all. Yeah. So, so if you if you if that if you if it takes that to mobilize you, and uh, you know, what the cynical side of me almost wishes that that Trump could never again be president, but could still be an active force in Republican politics, because he gives such an ugly face. Because you know, ultimately. It's this alliance in the Republican Party of people who don't want higher taxes, who are willing to tolerate Everything. a racist appeal in the Southern strategy in order to get what they really want, and that is uh, conservative judges and lower taxes. And, and they make that cynical bargain, bargain and in order to get that. Now, I know. And, uh, um, I'm sorry, Dr. Cross. I didn't mean to interrupt. Just wondering, uh, because you, you've you've been living with Dr. King since 1985. Um, as someone who who keeps diaries and who's a writer, I think when you can read someone's writing, you get you get up inside their head and you know them in a different way. After all these years of immersing yourself in his work, what does Dr. King mean to you? Who is he to you? Oh gosh. Um, well, you're you're right. I, I see him as a familiar person. You know, it, it's in, it's interesting. I I don't romanticize him as much as maybe most people, you know, who don't know him very well. Because um, I, you know, I I knew his wife, you know, his widow, for twenty years. I knew I know his children. I know his granddaughter and um, I know the people who worked with him through the years and 
I know the complexity of that. You know, the, the, you know, if you if you work with someone for much of your life, you, you don't think of them as a um, romanticized symbol. You think of them as a flesh and blood human being who has flaws and you know everything that every other human being has. So, um, so that to me allows me to to view him in ways that um, I think are are make me appreciate him more. You know, I I think that he was a human being who had all the flaws of any other human being, all the fears, all the contradictions. Um, you know, I know about, you know, the contradictions of his relationship with Coretta. I mean, Coretta gave up her own career at, at his insistence. You know, he he made it very clear that, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to be the person out in the world. You're going to be one taking care of the kids. And if that's not the deal, then the deal is off. You know, I, it was that blunt. And, you know, that's the arrangement that, so many women of that generation made that defer to the man and that's the expectation so so i i see him as somebody who i'd love it if he were around i mean you know just because such an interesting person and that the people who knew him best it's all you know how many times do the people who know you best love you the most <laughs> yeah. because they they understand the flaws they understand you know every all the contradictions and still admire you you know that that's uh, that's what i think he had is that the, you know every without exception the the people who knew him best admired him and uh, felt that he was uh, you know, a great person up close as well as from a distance. Now, he wasn't admired as much in, in the public uh, in the, the latter years of his life. They have all the opinion polls. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, when you talk about going from this love relationship to a hate relationship, when you start moving from race to dealing with the economy and that what brings us together, you know, black people and white people is more around money than we'd like to think. But but I just wonder, and you may have thought about this, that that if Dr. King had not been assassinated, if he had lived, would he have gone on to be president? Would he be a, a tenured professor somewhere? And I know it's just speculation, but, but from looking at his work, because at some point in the writing, he had to have been writing about who he would become or would want to become at some point. What do you think would have happened? I was thinking, no, no, yes, maybe. You're going to attach those to any of your questions. Um, yeah, I, I think that, well, first of all, at the time of his death, his popularity was at a low point. Mm -hmm. You know, he was being attacked by a lot of the civil rights leadership. He was being attacked. Uh, you know, he, he, he reached the peak of his popularity when he got the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, 
you can actually see the decline of his popularity. Yeah, because they, they did polls, you know, and, and he, so he was on a downswing, you know, in terms of his popularity at, at the time of his death. I think in large measure that was countered by Coretta. I don't think there would be a King holiday without Coretta. Mm-hmm. I think she was the one who, who said, you know, look, uh, I, I think that my role, my primary role is to enhance and strengthen the legacy of Martin. And that's where I come into the picture. She, you know, uh, Martin Luther King would have never set up a Martin Luther King Papers Project. He was notoriously lax about that. He, he, he kind of knew that it was important to, to uh, save his papers, but it was usually the people around him who were saving most of it. Coretta was, was a, a keeper. Martin Luther King uh, was not overly, you know, other people had to come. I mean, even to move his papers to Boston, that was, that was one of his professors who came and convinced him. And, and one of the things they were concerned about is that his house might get bombed and all those papers would get destroyed. So, uh, so I think that that in large measure is the role that Coretta took on of, of creating this legacy. And, um, and I think she did a good job. You know, I think that that was her, <clears throat> her historic accomplishment is that uh, creating the King Papers uh, project. And <clears throat> you know, since, since that time, we've been able to, to really strengthen historical understanding of King, you know, not just by publishing all of his papers, but also interpreting him. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I guess getting back to your question about what, what do I think of him? I think of him every, every day, like he's somebody who was family. And I guess indirectly, he is family. Um, someone who I think was worth devoting my career. You know, I, I, I don't know whether you know the story, but I, I wrote about it in my memoir that when Coretta first called me, I, I turned her down. Yes. And uh, because I said, I'm not a king scholar. I'm not a biographer. I, I, and, uh, and it was, it was largely my wife, Susan, who, who said, you know, after I hung up the phone and talked to her about it, and, uh, that's a stupid decision you made. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think she put it that way. She, she just said, yeah, that you'll, you'll be looking over your shoulder, regretting that decision to, you know, Coretta King calls you and you turn her down. And uh, she was right, you know, that is, is often the case. And, uh, and it, it, um, 
yeah. So it's it's a decision now. I understand that was the best decision I could have made. I mean, maybe I would have written a Pulitzer Prize winning book on something. Um, but you know, would I feel the sense of accomplishment that I feel now? You know, I I think I made a good choice, and uh, and that it did lead me in other directions. And now I, I think my role is mainly as a teacher, as a, you know, other than a scholar, as, a, as someone who was involved in education, public education. And I use my scholarship for that purpose, you know, rather than to, to write the, you know, the, the book that'll make you famous. <laughs> I, I know that the book that uh, will always be my best-selling book, my most famous book, is a book, the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> so, and I didn't, I didn't write a word of it. I just pieced together what he wrote. So, so I've accepted that that's just the verdict. Uh, that I, I'll never write a book that'll top that one. And, but I, but I know that that book will be around in a hundred years, two hundred years. And, It'll, it, you know, that, and I'm fine with that. You know, I, I did get that little thing that said edited by, and uh, and I'll I'll live, I'll be happy to live with that. My last question for you, um, I, I was spending some time just thinking about Dr. King's unfinished speech about you know, you know, will America go to hell? Is America on its way to hell? And I was just wondering for you, Dr. Carson. You know, what, what's your unfinished work that, that you like? This is the one project that, that before I run on ahead to see how the end is going to be, as my grandmother would say, what's that one unfinished project you're like, this is what I'd like to finish? I, I think that the project I'm in, um, and that is, I discovered about a dozen years ago, um, online teaching. Mm. And you know, back in the back in the day, it involved uh, inviting a film crew to come into my classroom, and they sat at the back, and I kind of did did my lecture stuff. And and you know, now it seems really primitive, you know. Uh, and but I remember when it went online, and I got some letters from prisoners who had watched, I guess they have a lot of free time um, where they can, uh, they can watch what's, you know, at a only at progressive prisons, because it's, it's possible, can you go into the library and actually take a course, which is so unfortunate. But I realized that, first of all, I was teaching far more students than I'd ever taught in the classroom. And they were students who, in the real world, outside of the virtual world, would never step foot on the Stanford campus. And then I've also come to the conclusion that I can teach a better course virtually than I can ever teach in a classroom. Mm -hmm. I can bring so much more to bear. I can bring documents, doc, you know, documentaries, I can, I can show rather than tell. 
and and it's all for free. So what I hope to leave behind is the best possible course on Martin Luther King I can I can teach. And and I think I'll always have an advantage over any future course because I knew the, the players. I've interviewed I've interviewed everyone from Andrew Young to Julian Bond and John Lewis and um, Clarence Jones and all of these people and Coretta. You know, I I have probably at least a hundred hours of tapes of Coretta talking about her life. Um, so so I can do things with all of that. I can I can bring it all together and make it. Uh, you know, perhaps I'm the weakest link in the, in the you know, all the documents are, are wonderful mm -hmm. and all I have to do is kind of interpret them. And, and so that's what, that's what I would like to leave behind. I'd like to leave, leave behind that, that structure of, of education that as future generations learn about Martin Luther King, they'll be able to, to have all of that in, in, readily available in ways that would never be possible in a classroom. You know, just just imagine you now just being able to see Martin Luther King um, celebrating his birthday with his family or um, just, you know, all of these, these kinds of little pictures of him um, and not just on a podium someplace speaking to an audience but but just being a human being you know um, seeing him swinging his kids on a swing <laughs> just uh, being able to look at the correspondence he shared with uh, with Coretta between Coretta and Martin you know that that's the side of him that I think I'd like to um, make available to the world. You know, that there, there was this human being who did remarkable things and we should know more about him. Dr. Claiborne Carson, it has been an honor and a privilege to just work with you and to speak with you and to talk with you. Um, in 2005, the King Papers Project became a part of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford. Dr. Harson is the founding director, and we really appreciate your work in making sure that Dr. King's full story has been preserved and has been told and is now being shared with the next generation. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember, Words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely.